The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis. I've got to get right into this so I can be timely and uh, cover some very, very important material in our study of foundations from Genesis. Foundations from Genesis. Look with me now in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Before I read it, let me just mention to you, uh, having looked at the importance of foundations from Psalm 11, foundations are crucial, but they can be shaken. But we do not put our confidence in the foundations. We put our confidence and take refuge in the Lord. And therefore, we can address the foundations and also solidify them by the Lord and in the Lord. And I, it is my conviction that God's word is um, inspired and errant and infallible. It is our confessional position. And that means it is utterly reliable, not only in its content, but also its order. And I believe there's a reason the book of Genesis, the book of origins, covers what it covers and is of itself foundational. So one of the first things you're confronted with the first sanctity that we're confronted with out of the book of Genesis is the book of Genesis. We have from God his revealed word. God has made His himself known in general revelation, but he has made himself known in a primary and saving way in special revelation that we have in these 66 books that the Holy Spirit inspired through 40-plus authors in 16, 15 to 1,600 years. And uh, so here is that glorious uh, truth of his word that has been given to us. Well, the second thing, the second sanctity, is when the word of God has been given by the, by the God of the word, then we can know God. That is eternal life. This is eternal life, that you know God and his son Jesus Christ. So now we can know God by how he has revealed himself in his word, beginning, but not finishing in the book of Genesis, but beginning in the book of Genesis. And now we come to a third sanctity, the sanctity of creation. Now, let me go ahead and say uh, two um, qualifying statements. I am fully aware that there is discussion among the evangelicals, among evangelicals and also within the PCA, as to whether these are 24-hour days or not. And there are um, included in a study report that we have done the four views that are acceptable. Now, they're not the only views. I'm going to acquaint you with seven views on this uh, tonight. But there are four that are found acceptable exegetically from the text and uh, that have been articulated. 
And so I want you all to know I know that. And if you have one of those four views, I'm perfectly aware that you can operate safely within the boundaries of the PCA. And we won't come after you with a um, with a stake and we won't come and burn you at any point. I'm fully aware of that. But I am going to go ahead and give you my conviction and why that conviction is there. And I'll go ahead and tell you up front my conviction from the text is that these are 24-hour days. And um, and I'm going to give you why they are and hopefully do justice, although I can't do extensive work in all of the other presentations. But the reason I am doing that is because Creation Week is not simply about creation. It is also about salvation. It is also about consummation. It's not only, can I just use a couple of terms? It is not only uh, origins. It is also soteriology. It is pointing to salvation. Its pattern is toward salvation. Secondly, it is, and it is anticipating soteriology, our salvation, even in the cre- creation account itself. Thirdly, it is uh, it is anticipating eschatology, and that is the new heavens and the new earth. And the patterns are unmistakable, and that's why I want to spend some time in going through it with you. I don't have time, but I could take you to Acts 17. And if I went to Acts 17, I would show you how, and we would look together, at how the Apostle Paul when he is evangelizing the philosophers at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, he doesn't start with the doctrine of salvation. He starts with the doctrine of creation. And there are things that he affirms as sanctities in his preaching. He doesn't debate them. He proclaims them. We're one race. that He proclaims that. He proclaims that we have one creator. He proclaims that we have one historical Adam from whom all of the human race comes. He proclaims the reality of creation as well as the reality of providence and that, the, and that in him we, lo- we live and move and have our being. And he also proclaims the glories of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is Christ through whom all things have been made. It is Christ by whom we are sustained in providence. And it is Christ through whom alone we are saved. So the doctrine of creation is crucial. I don't think there's any doubt as to why the book of Genesis uh, comes under such constant attack in terms of its integrity and its veracity. Because if I, I think this is the first book of the Bible, and if you get it wrong, then you're on a trajectory to get so much else wrong as you work your way through the Bible. And uh, there is a connectedness that cannot be uh, denied. I have one more thing to say to you. I do not have time to document as footnotes with everything that I am indebted to from many, many authors but I do want to give you a list of those who have greatly affected me in my study of the book of Genesis. Uh, and that is, number one, is Dr. Douglas Kelly, who was in the church I pastored at Christ's Covenant. His, his um, three-volume systematic theology, he's now retired, although still teaches from Reformed Theological Seminary. 
Johnny Gibson, Dr. John, Jonathan Gibson, let me do that. Dr. Jonathan Gibson, who was here to preach, I think is unparalleled in his studies on the book of Genesis. Number three is my dear friend who is coming here to preach in a few weeks, Dr. Richard Phillips. Uh, he has an excellent commentary on Genesis 1 that I highly commend to you. Number four is um, one that I do miss so much, and that is Dr. James Boyce and the insights that he has brought in his sterling commentaries on Genesis. And number f- uh, and then also Dr. Francis Schaefer, his wonderful commentary, Genesis in Time, Space, and History. I highly commend that to you as well. Now, I could go on with others that have uh, greatly blessed me, uh, not the least of which is Dr. Sproul uh, in, um, in this matter of the book of Genesis. But, uh, but I wanted to get those in front to you up front. Now, let's get to this creation week. Genesis 1, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll work our way through chapter 2 and verse 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit fruit trees bearing their fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding uh, seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth according to the uh, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged birth bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he has made, that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The create, and so these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, um, Obvious. Can I just go ahead and say something? There's a lot in that text that I'm not going to deal with because I'm coming back to this text to deal with it, such as the creation of man, the sanctity of man, male and female, the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of work, the sanctity of. We're going to come back to all of those things in our 15 essential foundations. But what I'm just dealing with today is the creation week itself and its implications. That's all that I w- wish to deal with. Uh, now, uh, in fact, it's all that I can possibly deal with. So I'm going to give you some thoughts around it. But one thing I want you to notice, 
that just some things that you see very clearly in terms of God himself. God has revealed himself by this, his word. And what do you know immediately from this opening chapter? Number one, you know that God, um, that God is and that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. This text is telling you there was a time. Now, let me be very careful about this. I can almost see Dr. Sproul looking over my shoulder right now. So there was a time when there was nothing. And God was sovereign over nothing. Harry, did you get that right? I mean, I know you are sovereign over nothing. And if I ever was sovereign over anything... January the 26th, 1969, that changed. And since then, I've been sovereign over nothing, pretty much. But God was sovereign over nothing. But there never really was nothing because God is everything. And God is. God is self-existent. God exists. And God existed well. God is not only self-existent, obviously. Secondly, he is self-sufficient. Nothing he made was added to him. Nothing he made was needed by him. All that he made, he made self-existent, and there was nothing. Now, the reality is, if God is not sovereign over everything, if God is not sovereign over the nothing, he can't be sovereign over the everything. So he is sovereign over everything, and he is sovereign over the nothing. And everything that you see at one time was not here. There was, quote, unquote, nothing. It's pretty tough to talk about nothing, isn't it? I mean, just stop right now and try to think about nothing. You can't do that. It's impossible. Uh, The closest, uh, as Dr. Sproul one time said, I forgot where it was, but uh, he said... um, He said, the closest you can get to nothing is when you're raising junior high kids. Because when they come home, you'll ask them, what did you do today? What will they answer? Nothing. So whatever nothing is, its definition is, and uh, I again quote Dr. Sproul, whatever its definition is, nothing is, in fact, whatever junior high kids do for the years of junior high. But there was nothing... Yet, even when I say there was nothing, I am making a nonsensical statement because the word was is a derivative of what word? Is. And is is a word of being. We actually are using a verb of being to talk about nothing, and nothing, by definition, has no being. Not at all. But yet, there was God, and God is sovereign over the nothing, and then God brought into existence everything, visible and invisible, through his Son, Jesus Christ. If he didn't, then you are left with only, I believe, only two propositions, well, three propositions. Proposition number one is that somehow nothing made something. That is 
not only illogical, that is um, irrational, and it has no ability to be true. Nothing, by definition, cannot create something because it is nothing. Or secondly, you actually believe in another trinity. You're a materialist, and you believe that space, time, and matter is eternal. And if we can give enough time, which we don't know where the time came from, but if we give enough time to space, time, and matter, then the space and the matter over a period of time will organize itself in opposition to the second law of thermodynamics, that is entropy. In opposition to that, it actually will run everything up if we give it enough time through its various accidents and mutations. Well, Harry, what's the third option? Well, it's actually the most rising option in academic circles. Do you know what the most, in terms of explaining everything, do you know what it is right now? Do you know what the number one growing explanation in the, in the academic world right now in terms of who we are, where we came from, why we're here, and why we're doing what we're doing? The r- most rising popular, I just read two articles on it last week, is that you are the result of a computer, um, of a commuter um, a simu- simulation. That somehow there was a race before us, and they have now got to the point that they can build us as a simulation from a computer, and we're just working out whatever the computer simulation says. <laughs> of course, then I have to ask them, the people that built the computer simulation that explains us why we're here, Where did they come from? It is amazing, professing to be wise, we become fools. I've got a great explanation. God spoke, and now the worlds exist. And there's a reason that God reveals himself the way he does. Folks, this is, this is like dropping, um, When the Bible was written with the first human author inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses, who writes this, this was like dropping an atomic bomb. Because how did everybody explain everything? They made a God of everything. And then they would always make an unknown God or an over-the-mountain God because these gods couldn't have done it. There had to be another God somewhere. And what he, and so when Moses writes this in the surrounding polytheistic pagan nations, this just dropped a bomb. All those things you're worshiping, there is the one true and living God whom you refer to in your ignorance, your agnosticism, but that is the one who made all the things that you're worshiping. And he is self-existent, he is self-sufficient, he is almighty. He is almighty because he has the power not only to exist self-existent, eternally self-sufficient, but he has the power to make space, time, and matter and reveal to you how he did it. And therefore, you now have before you this God who also reveals himself as spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are Spirit in their self-existent, self-sufficient existence. And this God is light. He doesn't need the sun for light. He is light and gives light. 
And he is the one that reveals himself. So we now have this glorious, this glorious revelation of God that reveals himself and reveals the creation. And now we have not a speculation, but we have a revelation. We have the only eyewitness account of creation. This is the only eyewitness account. And now he unfolds for us this, this revelation and he reveals to us that he has put everything into existence ex nihilo. That is from nothing. God sovereignly made everything. And he reveals to us how he brings it into existence. And when he does, he shows us in this creation week, he not only brings things into existence that are not simply by speaking immediate creation. He also brings things into existence that he has created and then fashions them an immediate creation. He speaks and there's the earth. Then he takes the dust of the earth to make the man. He makes the man from the dust of the earth that he spoke into existence. And then with mediation, he takes that dust of the ground and he makes, um, he makes man. I'm sorry. Uh, there's just a wonderful joke about that. <laughs> I never have a chance to tell these. It's the little, remember that junior high boy I was telling you about? He came up to his mother one day when they were doing housework and he said, Mother, is it true that God made man from the dust of the earth and the dust of the ground? She said, yes, son. And he said, Mother, is it true that when we die, we return to the dust, dust to dust? And she said, yes, son. And he said, well, Mama, you need to look under my bed. we got somebody either coming or going right now. <laughs> so God made this earth, and then he mediatorially takes this, and by the mediation of the dust, makes a man. And then by the mediation of the man, he takes from the side of the man and makes the woman, who is a reflection of man, Ish, and now you have Isha. And so you see God bringing everything into existence directly, immediately, and mediatorially as he takes what he has made in order to flesh out and work out the creation. And then he superintends this creation. And in other passages of Scripture, we're informed that the Father has authored this creation, but everything was accomplished in the creation through His Son and for His Son. And this text tells you the Holy Spirit is superintending that creation and this creation week that we now look at. And what stands out, obviously, is this notion of day. And I think you're given the Hebrew day. Evening and morning. We have articulated seven days. Seven days, all with the phrase morning and evening and morning, except the seventh day is not described with evening and morning. But all of them 
not only are described evening and morning, but they are also numbered consecutively. First day, evening and morning. Second day, evening and morning. Now, why did the Hebrews do this? Well, I think they did that. They said the day starts, the next day starts when the work of the previous day finishes in the evening. And then the, and then when that day starts on the evening, then it is enunciated the next morning when you arise from the rest that you have. So that becomes the Hebrew um, cosmology that is the view of the day, and each one of them is numbered. Well, what about these days? What are these days? Well, let me just give you, I do not have time to develop this. I give it to you. I hope we can do a conference next year. I'm trying to get this in place, uh, and uh, we're going to get our elder committee for it. Uh, would love to have um, uh, a the, our Birmingham Conference on Theology and Life next year dealing with the matter of creation exegetically, uh, not just as we did previously apologetically, but exegetically from the Scriptures. Would love to do that. Uh, so hopefully this will be dealt with in greater detail then. But let's take a look at it. Number one, there's the view of the days that these aren't really days. This is actually these are revelation days. These aren't six actual days. These are revelation days. In other words, when you write a book, you divide it up into chapters. And so these aren't given to you as simply days of uh, creation. They is God telling you about the creation, and he's using uh, the device of like chapters. These days are like chapters in the narrative. These are revelation days that are being stated, not not actual days. They are six days of revealing the creation, not six days of the creation. Number two is that each day represents an age. You've all gone to your classes, and we've got ice ages and bronze ages and industrial age, all of these. Well, what they're saying is there are actually ages of what has happened, and these are the foundational ages and how God brought forth everything. And these are these represent ages. They're the day age theory, that they represent millions of years. Uh, number three, and this is one that uh, I uh, was inundated with because it was popularized in the Schofield Bible uh, when I was growing up, and it's the gap theory. And that, you know, we've got all this problem of all these years, but we've got this week of uh, creation, and it's exegetically difficult to make this thing into anything else but a real week. But how do we accommodate these millions of years? And by the way, just when did Satan fall into sin? When did that happen? Well, it couldn't have happened before the creation because he wouldn't have existed, right? So it had to happen after the creation. When would it have happened? And so that's where Schofield, and by the way, earlier, uh, another theologian in, um, in Scotland, Thomas Chalmers, had actually posited something very similar. And this is, if you'll take a look at verse 1, you've got three little divisions that the gap theory gives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There you have ex nihilo, the first creation of God. There it is. Then it is theologically imposed upon the text that Satan fell and was cast down to that earth. 
And the curse came upon that earth and brought ruin upon that earth. What's the result? Next sentence. Next verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a gap that may have lasted millions and millions of years. Satan sometime in that time fell into sin and was cast to the earth. And that cast being cast to the earth, the earth as a result was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. See that foreboding evil and chaos, formless and void. In the Hebrew, I love this, in the Hebrew that's Tohu bohu, that the earth was tohu bohu. It was without form, it was unformed, and it was unfilled, and it was chaos and evil reigned of the fallen Satan. And then number three, and then came the third thing, and now yeah, and that's a gap. That's however many years it could have been. Two or three or two or three million or 20 million or whatever over that period of time. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So now the spirit of God comes to set up the creation that is then described. Next, so you've got really two gaps in there. The first creation and then a gap until the fall of Satan. The fall of Satan cast down to the earth with its ruin and chaos and a gap that takes place until the creation week is established by the coming of the Spirit of God to bring order to this fallen earth. Well, that's the gap theory that's given um, to us. Um, now, uh, I can't help it. I've just got to go ahead. Folks, um, that is taking theological facts that you don't know where they land and you're trying to create a place for them to land because there's nothing exegetically, there's nothing in the grammar or the text that would call for that. In fact, if it did, here's the way it would have to read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the earth became formless unformed and unfilled. But that's not what it says. Clearly, this belongs in the context of the first day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, descriptively, after this initial act of creation, ex nihilo, the earth is now formless or without form, unformed and unfilled. And God in the week is going to form it and fill it. But it now exists. And the darkness was over the face of the deep. Why? He hasn't made light to shine there. And then what? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is superintending his creation. And note the end. A continuation. The conjunction continues it. And God said... Let's address the darkness. Let there be light. And there was light. You see, exegetically and grammatically, there's no reason to create these gaps there. It is simply two things. Number one, we got this millions of years we're told that exist. We got to create a place for it. Because this week doesn't create a place for it. So we got to find a place for it. So we'll create these two gaps. And secondly, we know Satan fell. And somehow he has fallen in the context of this week, but maybe he fell before that week. And then God comes in order to create things afresh and anew. 
And so that you've actually in the you actually have a new heavens and a new earth from the old heavens and the old earth that were there when Satan fell. Uh, and so you have created something that the Bible does not support at all. And certainly the text does not support. Number four, we have what we call progressive days. Now, this is another attempt at the gap. In other words, you've got these days of creation but there are those are that's a progression of what God is doing. And there's all kind of time in between there. It may be 20,000 years to 20 million years or whatever. The progressive days. Then you've got another one. And it is this is the one that has become extremely unpopular, popular among evangelicals and and also in the PCA. It's the framework day that actually these are not. Um, these are not actual uh, uh, days, creation days. They're not actually days. What they are actually are literary days that God has set up a literary framework of kingdoms. And the first three days are setting up three kingdoms and the next three days are filling those three kingdoms. This is God giving us a um, a picturesque. Uh, and, and marvelous presentation of a literary framework. Now, there's all, I'm sorry, I gotta stop here too. There's a problem with this. The text is not poetry. In Hebrew, if you're doing what they are calling the framework analysis, there is always poetry, and you have things like parallelisms, antithetical parallelisms, synthetic parallelism, comparative parallelisms. You have all these parallelisms, and contrary to that, these are all narrative statements. These are narrative, and they're not poetic statements. It's not poetic grammar that's being used, nor poetic structure that's being used. It's stylized, yes, but it is not poetic structure. That's not the way that it's given. So let me go ahead and give you the last one. They're the analogous days. And this one, um, we have a professor um, in a, one of our seminaries, uh, very close to the PCA, uh, who teaches this analogous days. And what he's saying is, look, this, do you all remember when I was speaking to you that in order for God, for you to be able to understand God, he speaks to you in baby talk, that is, Anthropomorphisms. Do you remember that word from, was it last week? You remember that? Anthro, man, po, like, morphisms, bodily parts. So God is spirit, but he speaks of himself as having a strong right arm in order for you to get the concept. God is spirit, but he speaks of his eye moving about throughout the earth in order for you to know that he is omnipresent. So God uses those things. And so this this position is saying these are not real um, days. These are analogous days. These are these are God days is what they are. They're actually God days. But God speaks of his God days as human days to help you understand um, That's So these are analogous. Again, let me stop. Let me stop here. There's one problem. <laughs> Again, the text doesn't bear that out. Analogies, allegories, parables, anthropomorphisms, anthropopathisms, human-like emotions. When the Bible uses them, 
There's always two wor- one of two words present. And that's like or as. We don't have like or as here. This isn't setting up an analogy for us. This is actually giving us a narrative. And it's a historical narrative. Therefore, if it's a historical narrative, then the days are being presented as historical realities. They are not given as analogies. Uh, On the contrary, if you go to Exodus 20, what does it say? That God, that you shall remember the Sabbath day for in six days, God created, worked. And on the seventh, he rested. There's no like or as there. There's no, this is what God did like your days. He is clearly speaking of it as a historical event. A historical event that was done in the context of days. Therefore, what is the seventh day? It is a 24 hour, um, um, it is a 24 hour day in the context of how we are to live out our days made in the image of God. So, so let me um, begin to kind of just give you a few thoughts and then a closing comment, a closing couple of comments. <clears throat> Pastor, <clears throat> if you believe that these are actually 24 days, why would you do that? Well, here's why. So here we've got this creation that is God speaks everything into existence. It is unformed and unfilled. The first three days he forms everything. He forms light and dark. He forms the heavens and the earth. He forms the land and the sea. The next three days, he fills. He puts into the light and the dark. He puts the sun and the moon. And then he puts into the, um, he puts into the land and the sea. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. He puts, um, I just went blank. Um, uh, he went from the he, the light and the dark, and then uh, he goes to the uh, the land and the sea. And then what does he do? He then on the fifth day fills the land and the sea. And then what do we have with man? We have man who is created, and he is given a task to fill the earth, to rule over the creation, to subdue it, and to fill the earth is what he is given. So there are three forming days. There are three filling days that are given to us. And then you get to the seventh day. And interestingly, the seventh day, I believe, is a true 24-hour day. But he doesn't put morning and evening. Why? Because this Sabbath is going to be a covenant sign. He is going to give it to his people. I give you the Sabbath. Not only as a creation pattern, but it's pointing to salvation. It's pointing to the Lord of the Sabbath, who will give you rest from your sins. And then it is pointing to the eschatological Sabbath, as the book of Hebrews says. There yet remains a Sabbath for us. The eternal Sabbath, where we rest from the labors and the futilities of a sin-cursed world in the presence of the Lord. That's why he's doing it. But remember this. The Sabbath is a sign pointing to God's work of salvation. The Sabbath is a sign pointing to the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. 
But no sign can be a sign. A sign is a symbol. You can't have a symbol without a historical reality. No sign can be a sign unless it is something of historical substance. So this notion of a Sabbath rest for our salvation in Christ and a Sabbath rest eschatologically for eternity in the consummation that is now being set up by not putting evening and morning, anticipating how God is going to use this Sabbath to point to the work of Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, who gives us rest from our sins and our salvation and pointing to the coming of the Lord. Lord of the Sabbath, who will take us in to the everlasting Sabbath of a new heavens and a new earth. Let me give you another thing. Every time in the Pentateuch, the word day and a number is in front of it. It's always a 24-hour day. Every time. There's no exception. In the Pentateuch, whenever you have yom, the Hebrew word for day, every time that you have it, numbered, then it's always, it is always at that time, a 24-hour day. Well, wait just a minute, Pastor. This just doesn't make sense. How can you grow up plants and everything, um, and how can you have light without the sun? Well, it's very easy. I mean, God is light. In fact, we're told in the new heavens and the new earth, There's no need for the sun. That's not telling you there won't be one. That's just telling you there's no need for one. Why? The Lord is our light. Folks, God can set up the light and the darkness and put the earth on a rotation. Check the text. The sun is not there to give the light. God's already given the light. The sun is there to measure the light, to govern the light. That's why it is there. Yes, I confess to you, the word day is used multiple ways. Sometimes the word day refers to a 12-hour period of time. Sometimes the word day refers to a 24-hour period of time, which is the way I believe it's referring to here. Sometimes the word day refers to a season. Sometimes, like in Genesis chapter 2, day refers to event and the day that God created the heavens and the earth. I understand how day is used, but in the context, literary, narrative, with the days that exist, that are numbered, that is what, that's the way it is always interpreted in the scripture, unless we feel the necessity not to do so. Now, here's what's really interesting. Liberal theologians who write commentaries on Genesis None of them of any repute believe that the days are anything but 24 hours. In fact, the only people that seem to have trouble with the 24-hour day are evangelicals. Why? (laughs) Because we've got to accommodate the claims of something else. That's why we feel we have to accommodate it. Liberals don't. Now, well, that doesn't, and by the way, that doesn't mean they believe it. <laughs> they just say, hey, this is clearly, in fact, it's so clear that these are 24 hour days. That's why I don't believe it's true. 
But they believe it's 24-hour days because uh, linguistically, grammatically, functionally, stylistically, there's no other choice in the text. But we have manufactured all of these ways to deal with it. Yet Exodus 20, Exodus 20 so declares these, these as an actual day. Six days God worked and then on the seventh he rested. Exodus 37 declares these days as 24 hour days of creation. The apostles, the prophets, the, um, the apostles, the prophets, the, um, and Jesus all dealt with this text as a historical reality and a historical narrative. And the days as days. You will also see that binary has been put into the creation. There is God and nothing. God is a creator. And now there's a creation. God, creator, creation. That's a binary. Then God builds binary throughout the creation in the creation week. Light, darkness, land, sea. Male, female. He builds the binary in. Which is why Romans 1 tells us that when men and women in their sin rebel against God being over and above the creation, the way you rebel against him is to rebel against the binary. You rebel against God binary over his creation by rebelling against his creation sexually, gender, marriage. That becomes the way you strike at the week of creation. Well, we have much more to say about that in the coming weeks. Here's another thing. This week is set up to tell you that creation, by putting the Sabbath day with no boundaries of heaven, of morning and evening, it's not that it wasn't a real day. That is grammatically being done to anticipate it pointing to salvation and pointing to a consummation. You see, God has made us to work and then lead us to a rest. We're headed to rest. God built in the creation the pattern Work, consummation. Work, rest. Work, consummation. Not only our work in a week and resting on a Sabbath day, but our work throughout the creation until we get to the final consummation, the Sabbath of eternity itself, having been given the Sabbath of salvation. Do you see how this is? I'm coming back to this, and I know I've got to do. Oh my goodness! I, I've got, I'll come back to it later. So, but here, see it? Do you see it right here? God creates man on the sixth day to what? Work, and then a consummation. And who is the second Adam? Christ. What does he do? The work of redemption. And on the sixth day, he works to save us at the cross. Then he, on the seventh day, rests in the grave. 
And he comes forth on the eighth day, the first day of the week. Now we're in a new heavens and a new earth. This creation pattern is anticipating what Christ is going to do. It not only is anticipating the consummation. Let me me just give you one more aspect, the new heavens and the new earth. I'll, I'll do this quickly. Here is God. He makes his creation, the heavens and the earth. And he makes a man with his bride to subdue the earth, rule over the earth, and fill the earth. Then he sends a second Adam, Christ. And he doesn't put, he doesn't put Adam and his bride his church in in a new heavens and a new earth. You see, he created the heavens and the earth. He put a man with his bride to rule over it and then to what? To fill it. But when Christ comes for his bride, he is filling what is yet to be rolled out, a new heavens and a new earth. Now we have a second Adam with his bride who is not placed in the new heavens and the new earth is still in the heavens and the earth whereby through the great commission evangelism and discipleship we are filling up the heavens and the earth yet to be renewed the new heavens and the new earth. And so that pattern is being established for us in this creation week, which is all the more why it needs to be looked at carefully. This Christ, let me just finish it up. This Christ has come into the world and he has done his work on the sixth day. He did the work of atonement in the seventh day. He rested on the eighth day. He arose and now he has purchased his bride. And on the first day of the week, or the eighth day, and now the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, now we are sent out to do the work that is going to fill up the new heavens and the new earth as those who are joined to Christ. And Christ is in us. We are one in Christ. This new Adam with his bride is doing our work of evangelism and discipleship and baptizing and teaching in order to prepare those he is going to put in the new heavens and the own and the new earth. Well, let me just uh, finally say uh, in closing that this is a I'm not through. Oh, my goodness. I'm not through. I'm through now. I'm through. You, you can relax. I'm through now. But uh, but I'm not through with this because we're coming back. Gender, marriage, uh, gender, marriage, sexuality, shameless sexuality. This is all right here in this text. But we have to deal with this text with integrity. I don't know what all that means scientifically, but here's what I know. General revelation cannot contradict Special revelation. And I've got to deal with special revelation as it reveals itself. Now, I am certainly going to be down here, and you may come with your questions, your comments, or your full-out assault. I will be more than happy to meet with you afterwards. But I want you to think through this, and we're coming back here next week. Next week, we look at the sanctity of the marriage of the man and the woman. What was the sanctity of the marriage of the man and the woman.
look forward to it with you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be together. We love you because you first loved us. You are our creator and you are our redeemer. So we give you praise even as you uphold us, our sustainer. Thank you, Father. We have confidence in your providence. We have confidence in your redemption because we know also the majesty of our creation and woven into that creation is the anticipation of our salvation in the new Adam and the glorious hope and expectation surely secured in Christ of our everlasting rest with him in a new heavens and a new earth. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.